Uh, I mean, you might as well sue the maker of the Pixis because it took you 15 seconds longer to get a, a vial out of the out of the carton. But the last thing you want is somebody who doesn't have motion in their legs and has loss of bowel and bladder control. This is a disaster just waiting to happen. Hello, welcome. Rick Vicata, Greg Henry, the December 2016 issue of Risk Management Monthly. Jingle bells, jingle <laughs> bells. I can't believe it, Rick, that it's almost Christmas time. And I'm sure you're going to get me something lovely this year as opposed to the past year. So now let's listen, uh, let, let's just continue on. I bought you a bottle of uh, Louis Trez uh, brandy uh, for $1,500. Of course, it was bought at Costco, so I saved a couple hundred dollars. <laughs> yes. Well, you're going to be happy to know that when we do Wine of the Month, Costco is going to come up in the discussions because uh, well, they really do supply a, lo- supply a lot of great wine at great price. Well, the point of it is, is that $1,500 bottle of wine is every gift that you're ever going to get from me. <laughs> yes, I understand that, Rick. And, uh, and, I, and I thank you muchly for that. All right. Uh, before we get going, I'd like to uh, thank a lot of uh, uh, listeners of ours who have written in. They do read my column in EP Monthly. And, of course, Rick is the sort of the major columnist in oh, yeah, that right. uh, journal. And uh, they are—they have been thanking me for my ten years of writing the column, and I just want to say thank you very much. I appreciate that. Well, what the what you're what you're really saying is is that you just wrote your last column. The December issue of uh, EP Monthly has a, a bit of a tearjerker that uh, Greg wrote. Most of it is in English, not in Latin, so <laughs> I, you'll be able to figure it out what he's saying. Yeah, and it was very from the uh, from the heart and from the soul of this man. Well, I I hope people enjoy this one. So uh, there you go. Now we got to get down to real risk management business here, Rick. And it's mailbag time. Yes, you know, it is. Do you want to do Giant Steinmetz? I I think he sent it to you. I, I, you know, I take no offense when people really just say this is for Greg. You know. Uh, and and, and if you believe that i've got land for you in florida he sucks his thumb and holds a blanket for the rest man you're the expert man i'm just the uh, ed mcmahon well that's john steinman wants to know if there has been suits against emergency medicine vendors now by emr 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 he's 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 talking about those people who supply (laughs) <laughs> the various things that we rant about uh, uh, every every month. Well, pretty much we do it every month. The we attack uh, electronic medical records. The answer to that question is this: in my series, and I am still winding up <clears throat> my series. I have yet to see the case where the vendor of the health record was included in the suit. It's an interesting concept. In fact, it's one where a lot of emergency physicians would be lining up to testify just because they're so uh, incensed at the way some of them function. Uh, I've seen big groups get sued. I've seen multi-state groups get sued. But they concentrate on the doctor and the group. They do not. And I've yet to see the case, and no one's None of the other people who do this has come to me and said, 
that the health record has ever been attacked. Have you ever seen it, Rick? No, but I do know that there are cases where they take these really uh, long, convoluted, redundant uh, records to show just uh, how um, difficult it is to find out what the heck is going on with the care of the patient, and they demean the record, but ultimately the record is not on trial. It's the care of the doctor. The hospital that that uses the record is always included in the suit. The doctor's included in the suit. And I've seen the same trick, Rick, where they will actually take the record, particularly the nursing notes, which reprint and reprint and reprint and have almost nothing new on each. In fact, sometimes nothing new on each page. And they will they will pull them out across the courtroom to say, <laughs> doctor, did you actually look at all these pages of the nursing record? So I've seen that, but, uh, you know, I, I think John's got a good idea here. Um, if there's any plaintiffs listening and you want to sue the, the electronic medical record and can show that by use of that record, it delayed the care, you know, We'd be happy to talk about that case, wouldn't we, Rick? Yeah, he, he's talking about specific things where the record could be viewed as culpable, like some patient safety itch, uh, issues or somehow the wrong patient got um, the record w got mixed up and wrong patient or the slowness in initiating some kinds of um, activities. Although, honestly, I would not be particularly optimistic it's yeah, I, I, I think that's going nowhere at this point in time. Uh, I mean, you might as well sue the maker of the Pixis because it took you 15 seconds longer to get a, a vial uh, out of the out of the carton. I would so, like to sue the maker of the Pixis. I wanted to remember, the, go to the old medicine cabinet thing where they op would open it and pull out what you needed and handed it to you kind of thing. Now you need to have like, it's like Fort Knox trying to get an aspirin out of there. Right, you got to You actually have to give them a uh, visual scan and uh, a fingerprint <laughs> or something to get it out. Uh, so that that's answering John's question. Now let's go on to Bill, and uh, uh, B Bill Frona writes to describe a program they've developed for MedStar, which is a nine-hospital system in Maryland to deal with early recognition and treatment of spinal cord compression syndromes which had cost this hospital system some serious dollars. Uh, Rick, why don't you talk about the elements of this? Because we've mentioned enough times on this show, if they come in with back pain and, and they've got a fever, or they come in with back pain and they got a neuro finding, or they've got or they're the right uh, group of folks, it's, you're compressing the spinal cord till proven uh, otherwise. Yeah, he... Uh his group apparently had some substantial losses uh, and they tried to come up with a system that would limit the likelihood of that occurring. And they were very aggressive at this. This uh, conversation, I think, was precipitated by Chuck Pilcher, our guest last month, right. talking about spinal epidural abscesses. And, and we have talked about that ad nauseum. So I don't want to get into the specifics of that, but I want to get into what these guys did for their nine or 10 hospital system uh, in Maryland to, um, to try to limit the r risk. First of all, they had an educational video that they developed that everybody who had anything to do with a patient who may have had a spinal 
compression thing from neurosurgeons down to nurses basically how to watch this thing. I think they were like locked in the chair uh, to see this thing. Then they developed a system of alerts in, that were placed into their medical record to help the people have the diagnosis of spinal compression in the forefront. It wasn't necessarily linked to any kind of orders. It was basically st stuck in there with some randomness, I guess, to say, think spinal cord compression. Right, exactly. By the way, spinal cord compression just isn't from infection and abscess. Uh, one of the cases we were going to do this month, even before we got this, uh, uh, this email, was a failure to diagnose treatment of a spinal cord hematoma led to paralysis. Oh, yeah. There's a now, whole differential here. Yeah, it's part of the differential. And, but, but the funny thing is, uh, this patient was post-operative. Now, listen to this again. The patient had just four days earlier uh, had an implantation of a stimulator device to help deal with his diabetic nerve pain. Now, you and I wouldn't know anything about diabetic nerve pain, would we, Rick? No. But uh, he came back to the hospital and, and, you know, somebody did a CT scan and said, you're okay. Now, boys and girls... The CT scan is interesting technology, has nothing to do with looking at fluid planes, which are pushing on the spinal cord. And by the time they got around to, uh, to dealing with this guy, uh, and, and there were multiple people involved, including the person who read the CT scan, they claimed they read it wrong, uh, somebody else, and of course the neurosurgeons kind of turned on him. This was a $4.5 million decision in Georgia. And Georgia is not a particularly litigious state. Uh, but they weren't happy with this story, Rick. And I, I think this outline, this program that uh, Bill sent us would have picked up that problem. So uh, well, we congratulate you for starting this um, patient safety measure at your hospital. Bill. Well, let me just go over uh, a couple more of the components. They did an order, order set uh, about getting an MRI, an MRI that was technically adequate and fast. And in that regard, they developed MRI imaging protocols that starts off with a 30-minute sagittal view of the entire spine. One of the things that they said do not do is limit your uh, MRI to where you think the problem is. Right, and exactly. That's a mistake. So right. they get the entire spine in this protocol. Everybody knew that that's what was supposed to be done. Uh, they also developed a um, transfer protocol, and they had an audit for compliance with their program. Now, Bill sent us two documents. One of them is a uh, kind of a flow sheet, and the other is like a 12-page booklet on this. And I'm going to yes. see if we can somehow get these documents incorporated, their links, into our notes so that if anybody wants this stuff, uh, they can get it. Yep. No, I, I think that's a good idea. You might as well go after the low-hanging fruit. Uh, there's all kinds of interpersonal stuff we can't fix. But uh, when the science is this straightforward and uh, the losses are this big, you know what? Uh, it, this is the kind of stuff you should be teaching, training for, looking at every month uh, in the department. You know, I think and, and do it. Do it. Just do it. 
You know, the other issue I think that we really, really, really need to uh, reinforce is emergency physicians must must feel much more comfortable ordering MRIs uh, when they think it is a nerve or or or, or brain type problem. CTs for the brain are great; they show you here's a hemorrhage, but a lot of times we're not interested. We want more than that. And so I believe that CTs need to be used more. I need They need to be used in navicular fractures. They need to be used in other kinds of things where they will expedite the, the care. And they are, in fact, the right studies. CTs, in some cases, are not the right studies to be ordering. Absolutely. And, and the people say, well, they, they're so expensive, you know, oh, that's charge, that's cost, not charge. If I was going to have trouble walking <laughs> as a result, uh, go ahead, charge me the 2000 bucks, and, and we'll work it out. But the last thing you want is somebody who doesn't have uh, motion in their legs and has loss of bowel and bladder control. This is a disaster just waiting to happen. Get the right study. Uh, Mike Ritter. Uh, who's down at Mission Hospital down in uh, beautiful Orange County, uh, sends us stuff from the Horty Springer uh, um, newsletter that he gets uh, right. periodically. Uh, a shout-out to Mike. Thanks very much for thinking of us. So he sent us two cases. Um, one of them is entitled Morales Romos versus Hospital Episcopal San Lucas Guayama. Wow, yeah, that's I, a name. That's it. You do, you what do hospital that was pretty, that? <laughs> you do that pretty well, Rick. Okay, this was an a EMTALA a violation. But catch this, Greg. This is an EMTALA violation, so allegedly, both on the screening side and the transfer side. They had a double whammy. They Whoa. They, they really made somebody unhappy. Now, it does. these notes that from the Horty Springer newsletter doesn't say why this person was in the ED in the first place, which is kind of a, uh, a, a, a an omission. But the claim was that the hospital violated its own screening protocol by not having a fetal monitor in place for the entire time a patient over 20 weeks was in the ED. In this case, there was a 37-week uh, pregnant woman. She was monitored for only 50 minutes of her 100-minute hospital stay. So they broke their own uh, rules. Right. Uh, never write Never write a protocol which you don't intend to follow. I mean, uh, they can always turn to the jury and say, even they thought it ought to be done for the entire length of time. You know, I'm not sure, Rick, that every woman over 20 weeks, whether that should be in the protocol or not. But you know what? If you're concerned about the well-being of the fetus at that time, if that's the chief complaint, then it's a simple enough thing to do. Well, you know, I, I agree. This is the, the whole thing about this is about what are your protocols uh, are they reasonable? Are, are do they allow wiggle room for you not to have to, uh, so that you can get out of stuff if you need to? And does everybody know them? If if any of those three, three things are amiss, you're up the crick when there's a problem. In yeah. any case, they allege that they didn't follow the screening rules because she was not monitored the whole time. There were some issues regarding the recording of her vital signs uh, during her stay. Um, there was a physician at the hospital who uh, noted that the patient's lab work should probably have been considered uh, in making the transfer decision that they did. <laughs> but in this case, catch this, Greg, 
a transfer was being worked on 20 minutes before the patient arrived at the hospital. Yes, yes, I noticed that. Well, it, you, you know, Rick, I, you know what I think that is? That is absolutely rampant intelligence because if your hospital doesn't do high-risk OB or you don't have OB people available, I think getting them out of there is the most intelligent thing you can do. I worked at one of those hospitals where, you know, we had six OB people on, but no, nobody, they all came in to deliver their own kids so frequently we had nobody there, and uh, if I had a problem, um, and it's it's never a good day when you have feet coming out first. That's that's just a rule. When you see the feet first, you're in trouble. And we had to do some amazing transfers to the university with those cases. Well, in this case, the woman did have an abruption. Yeah, uh, and the hospital. Um, weaseled its way out of the uh, the case. Um, summary judgment saying the hospital is not, uh, and I don't understand why that is. Uh, there's not enough detail here, but there are t- take-home messages. First, on the screening side, you, you basically have to have a protocol and that you have to follow it on everybody. There, uh, Everybody gets the same based on uh, certain criteria. And um, in this case, the protocol may have been overly aggressive or didn't allow some wiggle room. So that that's an issue. Um, be proto- uh, be uh, careful how protocols are written so they're not so much in black and white. And a transfer should not be initiated with sufficient data to evaluate the, pay- the safety of the transfer. Uh, although, frankly, when you're going to a higher level of care, that's, that is... It means you you can't handle it, right? Exactly. You what you, you've said is this ain't the place, and uh, sometimes you have to be honest about. I think I think the bigger mistakes are holding on to people too long. Uh, when you can't uh, stop certain kinds of bleeding, uh, you get them out of your place. It's it's just not worth it. You can't handle the truth. You can't handle it exactly. Who was that? Uh, that was in, um, uh, God, why can't I, re- oh, the Marine Colonel in, um, uh, what was the name of that flick, Rick? No, that was Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson. He sits on the Lakers on the, on the seats on the, on the floor, uh, yeah. cause he's such a fan. You right. can't handle the truth. Yeah. A few good men, a few good men was the name of that movie. Okay. Next one. Miranda. Yeah. Prime Health Management. Yep. This is a local case. Um, the gist, an ED patient claimed, um, among other things, that the hospital charge was um, for self-pay patients was more than that for insured patients. Does this ring a bell? Yes, of course. Uh, <laughs> California, by the way, has stepped into this fight in a big way, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But carry on, sir. They are... Uh, th- alleged that two California regulations were violated uh, in this case. The patient went to the ED three times and was charged a total of $10,000. The patient notified the hospital prior to receiving their bill that they were uninsured, unemployed, and asked that his financial status be considered when uh, addressing the bill. (laughs) Yeah. Good luck. Yeah, good luck on that one. Now, there are a lot of details in this case, but one that survived the uh, plaintiff's claim 
dealt with the charges being unconscionable. I love that. Unconscionable charges and that the contract signed by the patient on arrival favors the more powerful party, quote unquote, favors the more powerful party. You're familiar with this term concept, aren't you, Greg? Of course, absolutely. And when you think about it, this is a contract which is entered into with fear on both sides. Uh, the hospital's afraid they're going to get sued. The patient's afraid you're going to kill them. But there is no equal power match. These aren't two people who've come together to uh, build a shopping center or anything like that. This is somebody who is coming saying, I have an acute medical problem. They have no cards at that moment in time. Uh, all the cards are on the side of the hospital. But when they use the term unconscionable, I thought only it was only unconscionable if you had an EpiPen in your pocket or something like that. Now, that's an unconscionable charge. But, or, or, uh, or, or a Narcan pen. A Narcan pen. But uh, anybody out there, this $10,000 for three visits, I think that would probably be relatively cheap, wouldn't you, Rick? Actually, honestly, depending what they were for, I would I would agree. Yeah. Um, oh no. But I there's, like there's I, a lot of big money out there. What I always knew was I never talked to patients about can they pay or would they pay. See, as far as I'm concerned, one more, one less paying me probably doesn't make any difference at this moment in time. So uh, where are we here? Well, uh, let's get down to the to, to the real question here, and that is uh, if if. Everybody should know that no two people in the emergency department actually pay the same amount of money through their insurers to the hospital. If you have a certain kind of contract with your insurance carrier, they've already come up with a plan to settle for a certain percentage of that money with the, um, uh, with the, with the hospitals. Uh, the actual gross bill, the thing that appears at the bottom, which goes to people who are self-pay, is never paid by the insurance companies. And the point here is quite correct. When I had to look at these patients when I was chief of a department, I'd always say I knew what Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Aetna, all those people paid. And if they and if I and a lot of times it was half of what the total charge was. And I just say, look, can we can we do half on this? And they were very happy most times. And the hospital got the same amount of money they would have gotten from a Blue Cross patient at that moment in time. And so uh, they're right. This this does put undue stress on that person who's so, some poor schmuck who's working, who's not covered, who sent the gross amount of the bill. Most people never see their emergency department charges, and if they do, they realize the insurance company has settled it. A couple of days, well, I guess it's not a couple of days now, maybe six weeks ago, I decided to depart uh, with uh, something that had been with me for a while. I decided to say goodbye to my hernia. Oh, <laughs> and and uh, it was right before going to the ASEP meeting, and periodically the thing would get incarcerated, and I needed to do some gymnastics to get it back in where it needed to be. And right a couple of days before going to the ASEP meeting, it got incarcerated bad, 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 bad. Yeah, and I said I can't go. I can't do this. 
So this was on a on a, a Thursday, Thursday morning. Thursday morning, I called my surgery guy friend. I went down to his office. I he said, "Okay, we can do it tomorrow in the surgery center." I went over to the ER where I used to be the director and got an EKG and blood work in 10, 10 nanoseconds. Yeah. Uh, and um, the next morning, I had a hernia repair. I just got the bill with Medicare was billed. The surgery center center billed seventeen thousand dollars for for this hernia repair. Uh, that, by the way, is probably skin to skin about a twenty-two minute procedure, right? And, and Medicare paid them something like sixteen hundred dollars. You know, oh my it's, god, it's like ten percent is what they were. The Medicare paid them. Yeah. Uh, so there is this huge gap, osis. But what would I have been billed if I had no insurance? I would have been billed seventeen thousand dollars by the surgery center. And this issue of billing the uninsured consistently more than the any of the insured 10 15 years ago was a big deal in the state of California and I think I remember mentioning the fact that there were multiple successful lawsuits uh, against large groups uh, Scripps um, um, Sutter uh, Catholic Healthcare West which is now called dignity big groups in California and they and er, every one of those big groups lost. Uh, on um, by charging these people and going after them and sending uh, you know collection agencies after right. these folks. People so, don't realize it, but the single largest reason for a family going to bankruptcy in the United States is health bills that are unpaid. Uh, it's not that uh, you know they started businesses that failed, they did this or that. Nope, it's health bills and. Uh, we need to we need to relook at this entire thing. Uh, they were the only thing right in the previous campaign was uh, Obamacare is a was a band aid on a cancer, and the whole thing needs to be blown up and relooked at. Uh, here's another point, though, from this uh, Horty Springer letter. This is just a tidbit from the June 30 issue that said the discoverability of risk managers' notes. Well, that's a very interesting question because all of us have protection of our work, uh, and that's why we, we look into those things. A court had ruled that notes taken directly after an incident and not at the direction of legal counsel had to be turned over to the defendant physician's uh, attorney. The reference case on this is Frankfurt Regional Medical Center v. Shepherd. But this is interesting. This is not the plaintiff gets to get it, but the other defendants get to get it. The doctor gets to know what the hospital's risk manager has written down so that there's no, because you know, when this comes to settlement, uh, the defense side of the table has a lot of sides and they thought that the doctor at least ought to know what the hospital thought about this issue. What do you think there, Rick? Yeah, no, I think that um, everybody needs to be playing on a level playing field here to the best as possible. Uh, so this is part of that. Here's a, here's a quickie before we get into some cases. I ran across an article called State Laws on Emergency Hold for Mental Health Stabilization. State Laws on Emergency Hold for Mental Health Stabilization it was published uh, in a journal called Psychiatric Services, 
by Dr. Leslie Hedman. It was published in the May 2016 issue. Ooh, and it this is has, current. Yeah, and has a yeah. chart. <clears throat> and, you know, a lot of doctors now work in multiple states. And I know that there are some doctors who are like what they call firefighters for these large groups who have licenses in a bunch of states and can travel around and fill in where needed no matter no matter where. So this they have a nice, nice chart um, that they put together. Uh, now, I did do a little distilling of it. You know, obviously, they all have danger to self or danger to others as uh, one, one reason that you can uh, lock somebody up. Yeah, and those are key terms which you should use, you know, from our lips to your hand. Uh, dangerous to self or others is pretty much recognized in a lot of states. Yeah, it, it's in all states, really. How, there are some exceptions, however, that, that I love. You were talking about Georgia before? Yeah. Georgia allows you to be locked up uh, solely because a person is deemed mentally ill. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. You're crazy, you're in. You know? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Depressed, you're in. Right, right. <laughs> Anxious, you're in. Well, that happened to Conway West uh, in, in your area just uh, two days ago, Rick. He had to stop his tour, and he was uh, hauled in, uh, you know, restrained uh, for psychiatric evaluation in Southern California. So happens to the best of us. Uh, yeah, I, I did read that. That that guy's a, anyway. Yeah, Seven. whatever. Good luck, Conway. Kanye. 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 It's not like Conway Twitty you're thinking yeah, yeah. of, you know. Yeah, yeah. Different, different musical styles. Um, seven states indicate gravely disabled is a, it can be a cause. You just have to state that they're gravely disabled. Right. Um, while a recent suicide attempt is a criteria in five states. That's all you got to do. You don't have to. Recent suicide, you're in. Yep. Yep. And then un unable to meet basic needs is in uh, is in 10 states. I recommend seriously that those of you who have licenses in multiple states, you get this article so that you know the rules by which you're operating under. Yeah. Believe me, the basic needs is the most difficult of all of these because what that says is you can be pretty good mentally, but if you can't feed yourself or you're not feeding yourself, you're not clothing yourself. And, you know, this is Michigan. This isn't like California. You, we, we, it's cold here now. So we had people who we would send committed uh, because they had no shoes, no socks, no good coat, that sort of thing. I know we were doing social work, basically, but you know what? You got to do something. Uh, you can't just put them back out on the street. So we use this uh, unable to meet basic needs a bunch of times. Yeah, and it I, was useful. I, I'm, yeah. Show, I'm showing Gregory on my Skype screen here just how cold it is right now in Los Angeles. Yeah, I'd show him how cold it is here in Michigan right now, but I can't take my hands out of my pockets. It would freeze. In okay. Sierra Madre right now, it is 70 degrees. Yeah, I know. It's lovely, Rick. You know, it's God's country. <laughs> but, Move on. But we're paying, man. We're paying. Yeah, right. Exactly. All right, moving on. Let's do a case. Okay. Uh, Here's one. You want me to do this? Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, we can distill this down. A 15-year-old with a bad headache and vomiting goes to the ED and is diagnosed with a viral syndrome, syndrome and is discharged home in an hour. 
That's pretty quick, Rick. Yeah. Uh, no tests, and that's okay with me. Multiple cause, calls and visits to pediatrician ensued, but she went back to the ED a day or so later, and she was diagnosed with dehydration and a migraine, migraine headache. Now, for those of you who are into risk management, second visit, 15-year-old, no previous history of disease, who's also seen or talked to other healthcare work, uh, providers in between. She was given morphine and was discharged home several hours later. Things persisted, and ultimately she returns to the hospital to see a neurologist. A CT scan showed a subarachnoid hemorrhage. She was helicoptered to a tertiary facility, and surgery was uh, was uh, taken was was given rather uh, for to treat the neurologic deficits. The EPs and the pediatricians were sued. Let's not tell them what happened to those people, Rick. What do you think about this care? Is it okay? Well, you know, it's really very difficult in these summaries that we are, have access to. Yeah. I mean, we look on the internet, We, you know, you, you have the Alaska book that we take them from. Yeah. They, they just don't have enough detail. And it's so easy to be a Monday morning quarterback on some of this stuff. It really is. But what I can tell you what I want to see if I'm evaluating this case, and I've I've been to trial in the last few weeks several times, and what they're looking for is some evidence that you actually examined the patient and the, that you cared. There's no question that once the patient uh, was at a tertiary facility and they had some persistent neurologic deficits, anybody can pick up the case. But I'll, I'll tell you, those neurological examinations, particularly on a second visit, better look like uh, your final exam in medical school, and you better have done a good job on those things because we make the decision how to handle headache patients based on their physical findings. Yes, and but what if, what if there are no neurologic deficits? That doesn't mean you still don't have a serious serious headache. Um, well, wait a second. Serious headache is not the criteria. It's whether you have a headache that you need to operate on yes. without deficits. Right. And with, without a story, you know, the uh, thunderclap headache story, uh, we might not work that patient up. And I think it could be perfectly reasonable. And in this case, the, uh, the court saw it that way too. And these people were exonerated. You know, uh, one of the things I think is always a dangerous is to make the first diagnosis of migraine in a person. You've yeah. never had migraine before. You, you're, you have no family history of migraine. And now I'm diagnosing you with a migraine headache. Yeah. Uh, yep, yep, geez. Yep. Uh, geez. Now the, I know I one of the things I, that threw people off in this case is kids only 15, and that's not generally the time when we consider subarachnoid hemorrhages. But but if this same story had gone, been been happening in a 40 or 50 year old, I bet you the diagnosis would have been made a lot sooner. Yeah. The other thing is, it for people we often jump to a name we can stick on a disease. Oh, that's a migraine. Without actually going through the criteria of what represents a migraine headache, and I would I would be willing to bet this patient didn't have that, but the doctors uh, the doctors prevailed in this case. Let's do another case here, Rick. Uh, there's a 2014 Merlin case. 
Knee injury at work was diagnosed by the emergency physician as a sprain. The uh, you know the diagnosis already. Yes, of course. <laughs> because yes. we're doing this case. Right. Patient was discharged after two hours. The actual diagnosis was at this location. His leg was amputated two days later, to the tune of five point two million dollars. Now that is a big hospital bill, Rick. That's a huge hospital a, bill. <laughs> and they don't really care whether he had insurance or not. <laughs> right. They they don't really care. Uh, all I can say is the history better be pretty well taken. I uh, I think that now that we have other methods of diagnosis, you better have a rock solid exam on that person. If you just casually want to rule out them having had a dislocation, my my experience, not with patellar dislocations, which we did hundreds of, but when the knee joint was actually dislocated, I bet a third of those patients had injuries to their popliteal arteries, and every one of them we worked up <laughs> because uh, you'd get those kids off the football field who was hit, who were hit directly head on. And they said, you know, what? funny, on the field, <laughs> the lower part of the leg was behind the upper part of the leg. That was, that was an indication for an arteriogram or um, uh, arterial CT, something like that at this moment in time. Well, the problem is, is that when these people lie in a bed, the dislocated knee can re relocate because it's as loose right. as a goose. But one of the things that occurs in these cases is that the knee is generally the size of a volleyball. Yes. And you oh, better, oh, minimum. You minimum. Have, and you have destroyed just about everything inside there, all kinds. So this is not like uh, the knee's general shape is normal. No, no. This is bad, bad, bad uh, bleeding inside the uh, knee. And when you see that, man, that ought to ring some bells. And, and, and the other thing is, is then you do your CAT scan because – that's better than plain X-ray, but a CAT scan doesn't show ligaments, artery, uh, ligaments and tendons. Uh, it just shows bone, for crying out loud. Yeah. So again, what's the right study here? The right well, study. The right, the right study is the one that 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 you do to find out what the arterial perfusion is. Well, yeah, I think I think that that is the next step. The case is, is this a dislocation of the knee? And uh, uh, when you see this massive. Uh, he, uh, hemorrhage in the knee joint, um, you, and you get some kind of imaging, and that imaging could show no fracture. It could just be totally normal. Everything's right. back in place. Exactly. And, and and that I'm sure that that's what happened here. Let's put that you know Velcro immobilizer on, and out you go. Yep. Oh yep. my that's, God! Five point two million. That's not that's not going anywhere. <clears throat> okay. Here's here's a Massachusetts case. 36-year-old goes to the ED with a severe headache a week after delivering twins. We know the diagnosis. We, yeah, I, I know we're so that. smart. I tell you, we, we there wouldn't be any malpractice if we just saw all the cases. I know if we saw everybody, right? Um, her blood pressure is noted to be elevated, but there is no brain pathology. That is a direct quote, I think, out of the show. I'm not sure what that term means. I, I have no idea. The BP is rechecked in the ED the following morning and is a little lower. And she follows up with her primary care doctor who sees who she sees and is discharged without further testing. The headaches worsen. She returns the ED where she has a seizure. 
on transfer on transfer to a tertiary diagnosis, uh, she has e- the diagnosis of eclampsia made. The patient has a rough course and ultimately dies. Uh, and there was money awarded on this case as well, Rick. Now, the thing that we're supposed to be aware of is that preeclampsia and eclampsia can occur after delivery. Usually we say, well, the treatment for preeclampsia is delivery of the child. Right. Well, here the child was delivered, two of them, and right. yet the woman developed this after. And, and this is a well-known, although not common, situation that emergency physicians absolutely must be be aware of. Yeah, and, and, and understand that there there is a relatively rare and yet uh, not not unrecognized syndrome of necrosis of the pituitary right. gland right. stalk. Right. And uh, the, you know, Sheehan syndrome and all that sort of thing, they can go on to very bad outcomes. As far as I'm concerned, women who are about to deliver and those who have just delivered, the index of suspicion should probably be a little higher for some of those people. I have seen uh, in my my own practice several people who had went into uh, this condition um, after delivery, and they were they had severe neurologic damage. It was not not a good thing. This case was four million simoles. Yes, and but but you know if you're the father sitting there with a couple of kids and your wife just died, is four million enough? I mean, it's you know I I don't want to become like a a plaintiff's bleeding heart here, but this is the kind of disease process that may have been controlled, may have required uh, some of those bigger drugs we rarely give anymore uh, to get them through that critical phase. So at least if you have somebody who's just delivered, there's infarction of the pituitary stalk, there's uh, hypertensive effects that that lead on to eclampsia, Um I would at least put these somewhere in the differential. Let's see here. We have a Cali- uh, California case coming up yep. here. Yeah. Yep. So this is, a, this is a 51-year-old woman who's being investigated by a GI specialist and her family doctor for complaints of severe abdominal pain. And this has been going on as an outpatient. She's getting all of these tests, and it's taking weeks to, get, to go through this process. Um. She has a history of some uh, of some sort of blood clotting propensity. Um, that's just kind of thrown out there. During her multi-week evaluation, she goes to the ED four times. On her fifth visit, the emergency physician orders a CT that shows an abdominal aortic clot. Surgery is delayed 20 hours. That's another story. Um, yes. And she has ischemic damage to multiple organs. Um, I don't think anybody can go to the ED five times. What about the three-strike rule here? Yeah, yeah. I, I honestly think, you know, three visits and you're in, uh, or at least you have somebody else look at the problem uh, it's. I, I'm sure this is a difficult diagnosis to make. It may have had very little uh, findings in the way the early part of the process. The other thing is, 20 hours is a long time to wait for the surgical procedure. Well, that was another uh, 
portion of the suit that doesn't relate so much to emergency medicine. It was about the on-call doctors, and uh, uh, there was a whole series of events that resulted in the the hours. The problem, Rick, is it does relate to us only in this way. If they they look at you in court and say, uh, Dr. Henry, if that was your mother, uh, would you have called another hospital? Would you have done something else? You know, yeah, you're but in we Los don't, Angeles. There's a damn hospital every six blocks. Where you, well, in fact, it's probably every four blocks. They don't you, say uh, we're going to have a 20-hour delay. What they say is it's like when you're on an airplane. And they, and they, and the, and the, they said, well, there's a little baggage hold up. It's going to be about 15 minutes. And then yeah. they say, well, actually the, we're, we're calling a mechanic out to check a light bulb in the, uh, in the, uh, in the panel here. And, and the next thing you know, it's six hours is going by. Yeah. So, uh, okay. Now, actually, actually I had a flight where that, that happened not long ago and it just drives you absolutely crazy. But I, I guess I would I would say this that none of us wants to wander into these time swamps but you ought to give yourself uh, uh, some limits that say hey if something isn't happening by this amount of time I'm going to do something because Rick what's the, what are the chances you're going to get sucked into the suit with the on-call doc with radiology with whatever it is you're just going to be sitting there in in the uh, defense box like everybody else. Uh, the the great word now in in uh, security, particularly with Homeland Security and the ISIS threat, is if you see something, say something. Well, if you see that they're still sitting there for four hours, uh, maybe you ought to mention that to somebody. Well, I think one of the other factors in this case was. She was being worked, quote, worked up by a GI specialist and another doctor. So I think that when we hear that, we kind of think, well, they must know what they're doing. And um, so they're, I'm sure they're doing a good job. And the GI doctor knows more about this stuff than I do. Yeah. And so, I think that's a lie. Right. I've probably yes, seen but, more abdominal catastrophes than he has. Wouldn't you say I, I, that's true? Yes. Yes. But I think we get a certain. Um, we feel a certain level of confidence that it can't be all that bad because the family doctor and the, and the GI specialists know about it and are handling it. But, but it's the but, false but, sense of security, Rick. Five it's times the false the sense of security. Yeah. Next one. Oh, you know, that was 4.8 million. Yeah. Yeah. That was 4.8. These are relatively low settlements. Yeah. You know, it depends. We're dying here. Yeah. You know, uh, and 4.8 million won't let you buy a decent apartment in San Francisco anymore. Uh, It's probably, yeah, that's true. That's true. The mayor of San Francisco was on talking about the fact that the crime had gone down because nobody, uh, none of the uh, crooks, thieves, and bad guys could afford to even hang around in San Francisco anymore. Yeah, they. they all take tr- uh, transportation into the city now. Yeah, exactly. Right. They come over from Oakland. Um, <clears throat> okay, that's, another that's Massachusetts. probably truer than you know. Yeah. Another Massachusetts, Massachusetts, go ahead. A 12-year-old girl presents the ED with abdominal pain and vomiting. If you're 12 years old and you got abdominal pain and vomiting, what's the diagnosis, Rick? Constipation. <laughs> yeah, constipation. Um I, I'm going to invent a pen that, again, as soon as you write constipation, it pokes you in the eye and says, rethink it. 
most 12-year-olds don't have that bad a constipation. Is that what the rectal exam showed? Is I don't know where they get this from. Well, the other thing is, is that since when does constipation cause vomiting? Is it like it's moving back the up? You know, is it like a no? It, does, it doesn't cause vomiting. It, somebody just pulled this diagnosis out of their butt. Yes, exactly. And uh, uh, diagnosis, uh, constipation, and the patient was discharged home. Now, this is the point I really don't like. It says two days later, with worse pain, a diagnosis of ruptured appendicitis was made. I've said home a lot of kids uh, who I've said, we want to re-examine their abdomen in the morning at 8 o'clock. You're you're either back here sooner because they're worse, or at 8 o'clock we'll refill their belly. I still think the best test on these kids is re-examination. Because it doesn't usually go from from some little pain to a ruptured uh, appendix in six hours. There's usually some time frame there. And I think that, uh, you know, of course, now that we have good ultrasound techniques, I think the child came back at 8 o'clock in the morning. We weren't sure we'd ultrasound her belly. Wouldn't you do that, Rick? I'd probably ultrasound her belly in the first visit, to be candid. Yeah, you know, but I I wouldn't fault somebody who'd set up rock-solid follow-up and brought the kid back. Because actually, you know, in the morning, you'd be amazed at what's available at 8 o'clock in the morning. Like the good <laughs> ultrasonography. Ultrasonography is, <laughs> is absolutely based on who's doing the procedure. The other thing that may be available in the morning is a clear head. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly right. But, um, you know, obviously uh, the child had to have an open laparoscopy and and was in for uh, 11 days, something like that. Now, it's not tragic. I I mean, she did have some infection. She was in for 11 days, that sort of thing. But it's one of those things that if we've said anything on this program for 10 years, it's bring them back in a reasonable time frame. There's nothing as good as a re-exam by somebody who actually knows their business. Now, those people are becoming fewer and fewer. Uh, they're difficult to find. But, you know, somebody who could really look at the belly is, is worth their weight in gold. Because, uh, you know, you may most of those kids, by the way, who I saw the next day um, were fine. You know, mom brought them in. We cleared them. They went to school. There were a few who had appendicitis, and I think that uh, I think it's it's a worthwhile thing to do. Uh, that was only a hundred fifty thousand dollars settlement. That it wasn't even worth the effort to talk about it for crying out loud. God, you can't rent an Airbnb in San Francisco. You can barely buy a Tesla for that. Right, I know. Um, all right, um, I've got. We've got a. We've got a. a friend who's been listening to this uh, program for a lot of years. She does not want her name used and we're not going to do it, but she's back. I guess? No, don't guess. But uh, she's back to uh, being involved in one of those fights where they wanted her to co-sign all the nurse practitioner and PA's charts, even if they hadn't seen them. Boy, that's, now, a, that's such a common, common 
practice. This is so generic uh, yeah. that it's it's really really applicable. But let me interrupt you as I have before we go too much <laughs> further. Yeah. Um, you and I, you and I, are going to be together in Las Vegas on December seventh. A day that will live in infamy. Yeah, it will live in infamy, exactly. Uh, and we have, because it's Pearl Harbor Day, there's no excuse for you to go out getting bombed, okay? Yeah, okay. Oh, jeez. In any case, that's the first day of our PA boot camp course, MPPA yes. boot camp course. We have 675 people attending this course as a reflection of the desire for P of these folks to get training in emergency medicine. And, yes. and it's a humbling experience. Greg will be there, Billy Mallon, Diane, the, the usual players. Um, yeah. But it's just kind of really gratifying to see um, the response that uh, has occurred. If These people like the course and, and they come up to you and they want to talk. And uh, I also, uh, I was talking to people last year, Rick, we also have docs. Yeah. We yeah, have yeah. spent their career in internal medicine mm -hmm. and now they're going into urgent care and they want to be retrained. And so we, I think probably a quarter of the folks there are not PAs or NPs. But they're docs who've done something else, and now they're they're afraid to move into some of these other new positions without getting a little more training, well, and I respect them for that. There's also the docs who uh, are generally family physicians who work in very rural areas who take call in the emergency department. They don't get a choice. And um, it's a kind of a scary thing to, to, to be there because you can get a serious case coming in there. Uh, so in any case, a subset of them are physicians who routinely work in emergency departments in very rural areas. But in any case, I just wanted to say that uh, that was coming up. I'm looking forward to it. The next one we're having is in uh, May sometime. Yes, but and we and we invite everyone to attend. Uh, but what she says is indeed because she she was getting upset about this. Uh, she doesn't want her name on those charts said, indeed, the New York State um, Department of Me uh, um, Board of Medicine does not recommend that a physician co-sign orders and charts uh, or assume responsibility unless they have seen the patient. And I think that's probably right. Now, where this is rampant and just having come back from ASAP, there are plenty of places where when I Ask people to raise their hand. Who knows whether, you're, whether your people are billing 100% of the fee or 85% of the fee? Half the doctors did not know how the billing was going on. I said, if they just want you to put your name down and they're billing 85%, then you're just going to be a part of the case. If they're billing 100% and you didn't see the patient, now you're part of fraud. And I think that uh, the federal government, and as we all know, does not have an excess of cash. They're not happy with the fraud situation. And so uh, if you're signing your name and you don't know what they're charging for those patients, you better find out. Because th there are embarrassing questions they can ask you in a fraud investigation. You just don't want to be there. I promise you. Yeah, there are kind of 
specific guidelines <clears throat> to allow billing to go from the, is it 80 or 85% level when a yeah. PA sees a patient uh, independently right. to when it's 100% when the physician is getting involved. And the physician getting involved is not the physician putting their name on the chart. The physician has to go in there and do an independent assessment of that patient. They have to physically go into the room. You can't talk about the patient. You have to physically go in the room and uh, do something to make it clear that you have done. Part yeah, participated yeah, in care. Exactly. exactly. Thank you very much. Well, this is, this is precisely what we do with resident training. Uh, in fact, this is always uh, now a, a bone of contention as to how much you have to put on that chart. In fact, the residents are trained to dictate patient seen and re-examined by Dr. So-and-so. Results discussed, Dr. So-and-so brought to the bedside. I mean, these people are getting very, very careful about the way this is done because there were some cases uh, that were brought against uh, training centers when care was not actually uh, given. Um, uh, let's do another. Let's do another email here. Well, listen, what, what is the what is the answer here? Should people well, be signing these piles of charts? I, I think if you've participated and you expect remuneration at the full fee, sign the chart. If you're not if you're not involved in the care of the patient, uh, that particular patient, don't sign the chart. After all, they can bill. It's whether it's what you're attesting to, and I think that there's more fraud going on in the country here than than we'd like to talk about. You know, we don't talk much about medical fraud, but I'll tell you what: when you when you pay people these one, two, three, four, five levels. There's what we call coding creep that happens all the time oh, in emergency medicine. It is bad. And uh, just don't be associated with uh, uh, pretending like the doctor saw the patient when they didn't. That's, that's unseemly from a lot of ways. Hey, listen, there are a lot of you out there listening. We would love to hear from you if you have been required to sign the stack of PA charts or the NP charts at the end of the visit, because we'd like to know what the heck that means. Yeah, what is? Uh, nobody because, knows. The state of New York, as she points out, uh, doesn't think that's required, um, and it 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 gives at least uh, the appearance as if you were involved in the care of that case. And I don't, I don't think that that's reasonable. I just don't, I don't think it, it's good. If you have a really good reason for getting physicians to sign these charts, please let us know what that yeah, is. Yes, we'd love, we'd love to. Yeah, know. We'd love to hear what that is. Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, 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 you responded to uh, Chip Potter. Chip has uh, been a listener and participator with us for, since day one, and uh, you. Uh, you responded to his email that he said, he said, I hope ASAP and other parts of the medical establishment will approach President-elect Trump about tort reform. Uh, let me just say this. Uh, this is not what the federal government does. Tort reform takes place at the state level. 
90-some percent of all the malpractice cases are state law cases, not federal law cases. There are some cases in which federal law applies if it happens in a VA hospital, if it's at an army facility or a military facility of some kind. But just understand, the federal government is not going to see a bill about this. Uh, It's not going to act on this. Uh, They think this is a state's rights issue and question. And uh, good luck with trying to get this as a part of a discussion right now in Washington, D.C. It's not going to happen. What little pearls do you have there? I have some great small pearls. And I'm I'm going to get out one which is uh, which is actually a little bit frightening. Let me get the sheet out here, and that has to do with a case which took place uh, here in Michigan and went to the uh, obviously to the Michigan Supreme Court, and it has to do with the question of who is um, who's liable. This has to do with the, uh, whoop, let me get the thing out here. It has to do with a hospital, which is a giant hospital, which will remain nameless, but it's just about the largest health center uh, in in Michigan. Uh, And it had to do with an on-call physician. Was the hospital responsible for this on-call physician. Now, here's the complexity. At its main hospital, this hospital, uh, all the physicians, we might as well say this, it's an open case, it's Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. But Henry Ford is a huge medical complex. The doctors who are on staff at downtown Henry Ford are all employees of the hospital. So they are by virtue of that, agents and servants uh, of the hospital. And the liability line is very clear. At many of their satellite facilities, Ford owns the hospital. It administers the hospital. But a lot of physicians on staff are private practice physicians who have appointments on that staff. Well, this had to do with the question. The question was raised, uh, does the on-call physician, is the hospital uh, vicariously liable for his activities if he's not an employee, but he's a, a private practitioner on the staff? And it was interesting that this case, the, the, the case, by the way, is Lassiter versus Henry Ford. Uh, at Al, this is a Michigan Court of Appeals case, uh, August 23rd, 2016. It said the hospital cannot be vicariously liable for malpractice there you go. of an on-call physician uh, if they do not have control of that physician's practice or that physician's income, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, nobody's saying he can't be sued what they're saying is the hospital is not liable for his errors of judgment um, on a vicarious liability basis. No, so, I think that that was pretty uh, intuitive that that should be the case. This is an independent contractor. And as such, basically, there's this wall between 
the independent contractor and the and the person that they're working with. Now, yep. the, now the hospital can be liable because for some reason the the independent contractor didn't ha- find the right equipment at the hospital, so that or the the staff at the hospital was not able to rise to the occasion. So there could be an instance where both are being sued, but if it's strictly an on-call doctor who's an independent contractor and that doctor, you know, takes off the wrong leg uh, or, you know, that's the responsibility of that physician. Well, that's exactly the way the Michigan Court of Appeals looked at it. The plaintiffs have been trying for years uh, to to pierce this veil because they don't want to really have to deal with physicians very much. They'd much rather the decision be made that these are physicians who are essentially working for the hospital. And so you just sue the hospital to get the money. It's much easier. It's much cleaner. But uh, uh, good news uh, for us here in Michigan, uh, because these these questions are cited all over the United States when these when the problems come up. And uh, so if you're an independent contract agent as the on-call physician, at least in Michigan, it's it's uh, you can still be sued, but they you can't haul the hospital with you. All do right. you want to do a quickie on this uh, Mike Silverman thing, or do you have something? No, you, you do the Mike Silverman thing if you'd like. So the, yeah, we have about uh, ten minutes left. Mike <laughs> Silverman uh, wrote a uh, uh, an article in EP Monthly in July of this year, uh, responding to a question. Somebody said, uh, wrote in and said, uh, our hospital is requiring us to get consents for every procedure that we perform, in essence. And um, he said that the hospital said it's the joint commission that is making them do it. It's a mandate. Um, so Mike wrote a lengthy response, and you can access it by going to EP Monthly uh, on the website and, and uh, track it down. Right. But he did come up with four, what he called uh, four rules. Uh, you need to know your hospital's policy regarding consent and follow it. We we said that before. The, the, the hospital policy regarding consent, and we acknowledge that when somebody comes in, they got to sign all these papers. Uh, we also acknowledge that uh, the power lies on the side of the hospital. But, but these are general consents for uh, care. And in those, there should be some statement that um, minor procedures, are, this consent covers the uh, performing of minor procedures. Uh, right. Now, you can, as, you can say, as an example, you don't necessarily want to say this, these are the things we consider minor procedures. Um, then he said, number two, excluding emergent, emergent procedures, consent is typically necessary for invasive procedures like chest tube central lines, assuming that the person is not an extremist. Procedural sedation, which everybody knows that you have to get consent for procedural sedation, and everybody knows also that you have to get consent for transfusions. This has been uh, around for a long, long, long time. Uh, be careful of procedures that don't have consents, he says, is number three. Patients should be allowed to participate in the consent process and document on the chart. This is this idea of shared decision-making. And say, we could suture this thing up. We could, uh, <clears throat> we could tape it up. We could glue it closed. Here are the options. Uh, here's what I recommend, but you, I want you to know what the options are. That's shared decision-making. And I think in, it's very reasonable. 
In the 1930s, uh, the famous case of O'Brien versus Cunard Lines was litigated. <clears throat> uh, O'Brien was in line to get uh, yellow fever vaccine, I think it was, before getting off the ship, one of the Cunard ships. Uh, and the uh, he stood in line, watched everybody else get a shot. And then when he got his shot, he had a vasovagal response and fell and hit his head. Now, he had a little damage, not a lot, but he said, they didn't have my permission. The judges came down on that uh, and said, basically, look, silence gives consent. You know, we'll do it in Latin if you want, but the bottom line is silence always gives consent. That is, they said to him, you got in line with everybody else. You didn't bitch about it then. You watched everybody in front of you roll up their sleeve and get a needle stuck in them. What did you think was going to happen to you, fool? And so the Cunard decision, which basically says, you know, if you're sitting there watching this and you're of reasonable competence, you can object to certain things. And if you don't object, we're assuming that you're going along with it. If we say, you know, we're suturing that wound, there's your chance to jump in and say, no, you're not. Or do you have other options, doctor? So uh, I, I think the silence gives consent idea is, is still valid. I've never seen an emergency doctor really go down on the consent issue, Rick. Yeah, we've talked about this in the past. Yes. And I remember you saying that. And I think that I I agree one hundred percent that this is over overblown horribly, um, and that facts are it isn't an issue. I remember when uh, at our hospital, our insurance company wanted us to get consents on everybody for everything, kind of, and um, and it, they thought it was some and somehow protecting them from some kind of malpractice consequences. The implication were that people were saying. Well, they did something to me that I wasn't, I wasn't approving of. But the fact is that that really doesn't happen. No, it does in certain fields. If, you're, if you are asleep during an operation and they decide, well, they're in there, take out other organs, do certain things that they didn't discuss with you before surgery, that's a, that's a different story. Yeah, that's a different but, story. Different story. But for emergency doctors, eh, I don't see this as an issue of any kind. Uh, just one thing before we leave. Well, I want to do Mike's fourth point. Fourth point. Then we get oh. out of that. Oh, oh step we did, on We me did here. three. Go ahead. Rough me up. Do it. If your hospital has a consent for procedures that needs to be updated, he said, make the effort to get it done, especially regarding the addition to your standard consents that allow procedures to be performed. You know that 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 consent form when people come in should clearly say. That you're that if you sign here, you're acknowledging the uh, permission to have routine procedures performed. And yep. if it doesn't, then you, you you ought to take the initiative to get it say to say that. Yeah, get it straightened out. Uh, Amen. La last point before we finish today, and then we get to do a little wine. Uh, every state is redoing all of their uh, opioid uh, regulations. The most recent one to come out is from Massachusetts, which was sent to me, just came out, fall 2016, uh, which we're in right now. 
And basically it says this, uh, you better know why you're giving somebody more than seven days worth of medication for pain. And uh, every time it's an initial patient, you need to contact the, the reporting system, uh, whatever they call it in your state. Now, in Wyoming, this isn't such a big problem because people probably aren't running from Wyoming to California to get a script. But when you're in a place like Massachusetts uh, and people can drive 40 miles and be in four different states, uh, what does this say about those various states? Should you be running those people through the various registries of people taking medications? I would only advise our listeners that know what your state is requiring because this is a hot political issue which uh, which the attorneys are going to make hay out of. Look at you. You didn't check, and now you continued their addiction, and now they'll never work again, yada, yada, all that sort of thing. Be careful. Uh, Massachusetts has just is just the latest one to join this crowd. Yeah, I, I've um, I've kind of looked at a little slightly different point of view. We're not the problem. Leave us alone. Yeah. We know we we know how to do this. Uh, acetaminophen and Motrin won't cut it when, uh, for a lot of things that you're in the ER for. Um, so It's the pill mills. It's it's the it's the occupational health uh, clinics. It's the you know we're not the bad guys here. It's the Tug Valley Pharmacy. You better believe it. <laughs> you better All believe right. it. All right. What do you got? All right. Well, we're back in Northern California. Again. There you go. And I want to uh, I want to make a couple of points. Uh, the first one is again great in this country for very good money. Uh, Parker reevaluated La Crema. Oh, that's my my wife's favorite. Your wife's favorite. Well, your wife, except for picking you as a husband, has had exceptional taste. And uh, her La Crema again is 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 rated, you know, at ninety, which is terrific. And he Costco. Put, he well, he put the cost in here of what it is retail at most stores. You'll be happy to know that they listed it $30. You can buy it at Costco for, I think it's $12. Uh, if you've not seen the article about, uh, what's the brand that Costco has for everything? Kirkland, Kirkland. right? Everything Kirkland. I'm wearing is, everything I have on now is yeah, from Kirkland. I, I don't even want a visual on this, but the bottom line is uh, a lot, most of those Kirkland brand wines our major names in California have been excellent. There's a whole cult of people who are discovering who's made these great wines. And uh, I would say, you know, do it. I mean, I mean, uh, they are now the largest wine distributor in the United States, and there's a reason for it. They're doing a good job. A couple others I would point out just quickly. A wine that we've been drinking since we were children, practically, Louis Martini which is some of it's in Napa, some Sonoma, some in a few other areas, though. At, at, uh, they make a California Cabernet, which is the great grape of California, which came out rated at 97. 
Now, this is the kind of levels that people talk about with Screaming Eagle, which is 850 bucks a bottle. <laughs> and Parker says, for $34, you can have a fabulous California wine. I mean, think about it out there. Louis Martini, we've known that name again since we were children. There's no reason to uh, to be experimenting, you know, unless you want to impress your friends with how much money you have to flush down the drain because in two hours, it's all urine anyway. Uh, 34 bucks a bottle versus $850 bottle. Both of them rated the same. And so I think uh, another lesson that uh, sometimes more money is not the answer. So there you go, Rick. Have Gregory, a great I'll see, Christmas. I'll see you in a couple of weeks at our course. Look yes. forward to it. In the meantime, uh, enjoy your uh, Thanksgiving with your family. I will. And um, thanks for doing this issue with me. Yeah, best of all. Bye-bye. Take bye. care.